Today, we're going to talk about the metaverse, starting with the most important experience of all, connecting with people. We, we seem to see a lot of people interested in virtual meetings or virtual conversations in a fixed space, which um, seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to want. But it's not quite the same thing as the metaverse in Snow Crash. Those are two views of the metaverse. First, from Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of the company once known as Facebook and now known as Meta, followed by Seattle science fiction author Neil Stevenson, who invented the word metaverse in a novel called Snow Crash back in 1992. Now Neil is out with a new book titled Termination Shock, which weaves a thrilling story around the issues of climate change and geoengineering. In this episode of the Fiction Science Podcast, Neil delves into the real-life science and politics behind the book. But I also just had to ask him about his original vision of the metaverse and how the concept has morphed into something very different. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the intersection of science and fiction. Join me and Neil Stevenson as we dive into Termination Shock, the metaverse, and much, much more. Neil Stevenson is considered one of the pioneers of a science fiction genre called cyberpunk, a genre that also includes authors such as Philip K. Dick, William Gibson, and Bruce Sterling. Neil's novels have delved into European politics in the 17th and 18th century, cryptography during World War II, nanotechnology in a neo-Victorian society, synthetic consciousness, and the fictional destruction of the moon. But he's never written about the sci-fi implications of the climate crisis. Until now. His latest novel, Termination Shock, addresses climate change with a vengeance, while also getting into the finer points of Punjabi martial arts and other topics worth geeking out about. Writing isn't the only thing that keeps him busy. Back in 1999, Neil helped Jeff Bezos start up his Blue Origin space venture, and more recently he was chief futurist for Magic Leap, a startup that's developing augmented reality goggles. Even more recently, he's been answering a lot of questions about the metaverse, which is the term he came up with for a mass-market virtual reality environment. Neil is getting so many questions because the word metaverse has been seized upon by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella to describe their vision of the next big thing in digital technology. I had a great conversation about the metaverse with Neil for the podcast, and, and don't worry, we'll get to that. But the first thing we talked about was Neil's next big thing, Termination Shock, which hits bookstores in mid-November. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Neil. Let's start with the genesis of your new book, Termination Shock. In a Wired interview, you said that the issues surrounding climate change and its effects were so big that nothing else mattered in comparison, and that it would have seemed odd for you not to write a science fiction novel about it. When did the light go off, and how did you turn that spark into a techno-thriller? Well, of course, I'd been following it for a while, um, and um, it just... Uh, got to a point where um, there was this um, conspicuous um, gap between the, the severity of the, the problem, just as measured by the CO2 content in the atmosphere and what's actually being done um, to address it. 
So even people who think of themselves as environmentally conscious and aware of climate change related issues, I think sometimes may not fully appreciate just how high the CO2 level has become uh, and how rapidly it's continuing to, uh, to increase. So it just kind of steadily grew in importance in my mind to the point where uh, it just seemed to obviously outweigh uh, every other possible thing I could be concerned about. I realize you're not a policymaker, you're a novelist, but it's striking that so much is happening with climate policy at the same time that this book is coming out. Even as we speak, world leaders are wrapping up a climate summit in Rome. There's a massive piece of legislation that promises to set aside more than $500 billion for climate spending. And the Saudis have just broken ground on a 100-mile-long zero-emissions urban development that comes in for a mention in your book. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how these real-life developments are playing out and, and whether this might be a case of life imitating art or art imitating life. Yeah, I mean, I should make the caveat that what's in my book is a fictionalized version um, and you know, not meant to be taken as a literal description. But maybe a good place to, to begin is just with basic facts. You know, we've been putting CO2 into the atmosphere at a literally industrial scale for a couple of hundred years, parts per million of CO2 now is well above 400 and still climbing up from a number that was in the 200s at the beginning of all of this. Uh, and right now it's higher than it has been in millions of years. Uh, so the last time the CO2 content of the atmosphere was as high as it is today, well, the, the climate of the world was very different from what it is now. And it's not going down. So we're continuing to add to that number every year. And when we hear people talk about emissions reductions, you know, or net zero carbon uh, as a goal that might uh, be achieved decades in the future, that doesn't mean that the CO2 level in the atmosphere begins to come down at that point. That just means that we're slowing down or maybe even stopping the rate at which that number is climbing. Um, so... So we're looking at a few decades of serious instability and um, the um, efforts that are being made by, by various governments um, to, uh, to address this problem are, are all welcome. Anything is helpful, but people need to be realistic about how long it's going to take to kind of turn this thing around and begin pulling that CO2 level down towards back towards where it was before the industrial revolution. In the book, a lot of the governments that are typically the big players in, in a thriller like the one that you've written, for example, the United States are almost completely absent in, in what's happening. Do you think that the U.S. And, and other leading countries are going to be able to get their act together or is it going to be up to the billionaires? Well, the um, in in my book, it's it's a billionaire because it makes for a good story. I don't know how realistic that is. Um, it's more likely to be um, governments that are um, that are less democratic. Frankly, if you look at the way um, the United States and the UK both responded to coronavirus, we weren't even able to get a large part of the population to agree that it was a real thing. 
even though people were dying by the hundreds of thousands all around them. So the death toll from this is much higher than the total death toll from uh, America's participation in the Second World War and compressed into a much shorter period of time. And yet there's still a lot of people who uh, don't agree that it even exists. And among people who do, who are willing to agree that it exists, there's disagreement about what measures we ought to take in order to address it. So if if you can't get people to agree about these things, um, when people are literally dropping dead all around them, then I, I'm pessimistic about uh, our ability to to get people to agree that, that uh, human-caused climate change is a real thing, much less to agree on taking expensive and difficult steps to, um, to, to, to deal with that problem. Um, so that's why in the book, as you say, um, the United States government per se is not depicted as being a very big player in all of this, um, because I think that's just a realistic depiction of how things are. China really is uh, very much more of a player, and I guess that fits in with your view that less democratic countries, because of the global geopolitics involved, uh, have to step in for these sorts of things. Uh, It's a little chilling to think about that. Uh, You also talk about the red-blue divisions in the country. That was a theme in your earlier book, uh, Fall or Dodge in Hell, and uh, you, you see that as continuing. So it's not a happy vision of what the United States is shaping up to in Neil Stevenson's novels. Yeah. And and to be clear, I'm not a big fan of non-democratic countries. I'm a democracy guy all the way. But the um, if if the question we're talking about is, you know, can the big democracies like the U.S. and the U.K. get behind, you know, expensive and difficult uh, action uh, to uh, to address climate change. Right now, I think we have to be realistic and say that that doesn't look that likely. I wanted to talk about all the technological frontiers that you touch upon in the book. Uh, you already mentioned COVID, and and it was intriguing to me that you mentioned COVID twenty seven. You know, in twenty twenty seven, we're still going to be dealing with uh, COVID, and and uh, in the course of the book, of course, COVID uh, enters the picture as well. You also talk about solar geoengineering and super guns. That's the big idea that the plot revolves around. You bring in mm-hmm. deep fake videos, sonic weapons weapons, brain implants, facial recognition, tons of drones. You even cite a 1962 study by the late physicist Freeman Dyson on novel types of weapon systems. So where do you get all this stuff? And, and do you have a file cabinet with alphabetized manila folders for way out technologies? Uh, I still am a manila folder user. But um, so I'm dating myself there, but not for this. It's a lot of the the things you mentioned are just sort of part of the picture that we're all aware of. We've all heard of drones. You know, we've all heard of COVID. Certainly we've all heard of, of, of the, the pandemic. So it doesn't take some kind of special science fiction writer brain to, to be aware of those things. And, and it's sort of an obvious uh, move on my part or any other science fiction writer's part to include kind of slightly projected into the future versions of those things in a a book that's set in the future. Um, Then there's big ideas 
that um, you know you mentioned solar geoengineering. That's a, a thing that's been talked about quietly, I would say, uh, um, in the, the sort of geophysics community um, for for a while. But um, people are generally reluctant to come out and and advocate for it for obvious reasons. Um, and um, the the Dyson thing is just a um, something I became aware of uh, through through George Dyson, who's a friend of mine and who has access to a lot of his his dad's um, former papers. So he kind of sends me things from time to time to to read. And I can't remember why he sent me that particular paper, but it happened to fit into a, a nice little plot niche. So I decided to use it. A couple of years ago, we talked about two of your earlier novels, Seven Eves and Fall or Dodge in Hell. And you said that Fall was much more freeform than Seven Eves. But I can feel when I'm reading the book that there was a lot of effort put into nailing down the chemistry and the atmospheric physics for termination shock. Where would you say this novel fits into the spectrum of scientific seriousness? Yeah, it's much more like Seven Eves. Um, It's probably even more that way uh, seven eves begins with a very implausible event which is the moon breaking up for no apparent reason <clears throat> and there's Spoiler nothing alert. like that <laughs> yeah there, there's nothing like that in um in termination shock so people have been um studying this particular form of geoengineering for a while and have, have posited a few different technologies that might be used to implement it, such as high-flying airplanes or high-altitude balloons, guns, uh, what have you. We know in general kind of what the effects would be because nature has performed this experiment many times in human history in the form of volcanic eruptions that throw lots of sulfates into the stratosphere. We don't know in detail what the results would be, but we know that in general, there would be a kind of veil or haze uh, in the air that would bounce back enough of the sun's light to cool the planet down and um, at least for a year or two and um, and a few other kind of specifics on on what it would look like. So that's a uh, sort of a sufficiently well-developed and um, talked about idea that, um, you know, on the kind of hard science fiction level, um, my contribution was just to try to do some back of envelope calculations about how it would look if you used a gun, a big gun as the delivery mechanism. So other than that, there's not a lot of, of serious um, technological extrapolation or scientific extrapolation in this book. You don't go to a climatologist and say, hey, run the figures for me? I looked into it. I would have uh, very much liked to um, actually do a legit simulation because for this kind of intervention um, in the atmosphere, it, it matters where you do it. So uh, if, if you inject this stuff at a particular, let's say the Northern versus the Southern hemisphere, you get different results. And so uh, I really wanted to do a detailed simulation of the, um, of this particular scenario, and then look look for a place on the Earth where the results would be clearly a bad, um, because because the way that this thing is going to go is that if if it were done, it would it would certainly cool the Earth down in general, but but 
certain specific areas would see changes in their weather and their, their climate that might be bad for them. Um, so in a perfect world, I would have done that simulation and, and figured out the scientifically correct uh, answer of, you know, who, who would really get screwed if somebody tried this? And then how would it affect them? You know, how would they react to it? As it happened, I wasn't really able to, to mobilize that amount of, of computing power and expertise and time. And so I, uh, I, I made a, an educated guess. Yeah, that anticipates another question that I was going to ask, uh, that your fellow science fiction writer, Andy Weir, admits that there was one aspect of his book, uh, The Martian, where the science had to be bent in the service of making a good story having to do with the Martian winds. And so I guess that would be an example where maybe it's not, you, you can't take that to the bank in terms of the science, but it's in the services of a, of a good story is that you came up with something that served the purposes of the plot. Yeah. And, and another reality about this is that Weather and climate, of course, are different things. And so and, and it's hard for people to think statistically and to, to keep those things straight. So, you know, you probably know people who, whenever there's a, a cold snap anywhere in the world, will say, oh, well, so much for this global warming nonsense. You know, if it's cold, you know, in, in Chattanooga on December 3rd, it means that disproves the whole idea of of global warming or what have you, right? So um, <clears throat> it's going to be the same when people begin to um, to take measures to um, to capture carbon from the atmosphere or to um, to do solar geoengineering or any kind of human intervention. It has to have worse effects in some areas than others, and. Um, and when that happens, it's going to be impossible for anyone to really know whether, you know, if um, if there's a, a drought or a, a, if there's flooding, you know, in a particular place at a particular time, is that just typical random variation like we've always had? Or can we attribute that to the actions of people who are trying to do something about climate change? So it's going to be an ongoing issue you know, not just with geoengineering per se, but with any measures that we take to, to try to deal with this problem. So I've got to ask about the metaverse. Uh, you're the guy who came up with the metaverse for an early novel called Snow Crash nearly 30 years ago. And now the metaverse is a big thing for Mark Zuckerberg and the company formerly known as Facebook. Microsoft is also adopting the metaverse metaphor for its communication tools. Could you recap how you envisioned the metaverse back in 1992 and how that concept has become part of the cultural mainstream over the past three decades? Yeah, I've been working on a, a computer art project that, that brought together art and technology. And so um, I was trying to um, do image processing on what was then a top, top of the line Macintosh computer. Uh, and we had scope creep, kept getting more complicated, and I kept buying more equipment, which was painfully expensive at the time, and um, um, writing code and hooking things up. I had this big rig in my spare bedroom with all of these VCRs and stuff connected up with cables, and I wrote all this code and uh, learned weird new computer languages that have since disappeared from the scene, and 
Um, so it was all a great fun, but um, the, the question that posed itself was, um, I look at all this stuff I'm working with, it's very expensive. And then over here in the corner, there's a TV set which costs, you know, $100. And technologically, they're not that different. So why is the TV set almost free? Whereas all this stuff I'm working with over here is so expensive. And the answer, of course, is that lots of people watch TV. So TVs were once expensive lab curiosities, but they got cheap because lots of people watch TV. And so the price came down. Um, and what caused uh, TV to become popular was um, programming that lots of people wanted to see. So, you know, I Love Lucy, The Ed Sullivan Show, you name it, all those classic TV shows made ordinary people want to have a TV set in their house. So what could be in 3D graphics, 3D computer graphics, what could be the I Love Lucy of, of that world that would cause millions of people to go out and buy this stuff? Um, and so that was how I started thinking about the metaverse. And I thought about it as a more of a primetime TV analogy. I mean, it was 3D, it was interactive, but it's a very mass market uh, oriented and, you know, advertising driven. And so that's, that's kind of the, the genesis of it. Um, and of course it became a, uh, an important part of, um, of the, the plot in Snow Crash, uh, but there's also augmented reality uh, in Snow Crash. There's people called gargoyles who go around in AR headsets, which is a different thing from the metaverse. And so, you know, as it happened, a lot of people picked that book up and, um, and it seemed to influence the way people thought about a certain kind of future. And um, the way that it, it really developed was not what I, it, it wasn't like TV. The thing that actually became very popular and drove the price of the hardware down was games, was video games. Um, and we start seeing that with with Doom, um, you know, which is a you know, kind of really 3D as opposed to 2D arcade style game. And, and once that catches on, just it becomes a, a virtuous circle that, that makes the hardware super cheap. So that's kind of the story as I see it. The, um, <clears throat> um, you know, the use of the, the term metaverse has become a lot more widespread just in the last year. Um, and I don't know why exactly, but clearly it's being used by important people at multiple tech corporations, not just Facebook, but, you know, Microsoft, as you said, and Epic Games and quite a few other uh, tech companies as well. I think that people are looking for what the next big thing is going to be after the web and mobile and social media. Do you think that they're on the right track? Is you've kind of had a role in augmented reality with Magic Leap, and, and so you've seen it from the inside. I don't expect mm -hmm. you to comment on where Magic Leap is going, but do you feel as if there's something to the idea that augmented reality is the next big thing? I'm personally a lot more interested in augmented reality than virtual reality, um, as is evidenced by the fact that I, I worked at Magic Leap, as you said. Um, I think it's got a bigger future and that it's uh, going to be easier for ordinary people to engage with um, uh, because you're not 
plunging into a completely fictitious universe. You're still existing in your your real surroundings, but there's stuff added to it. The idea of a fully connected planetary scale metaverse as depicted in the book um, is certainly feasible, but you know whether people are gonna be accessing that through VR headsets and moving around in it freely is a, another question. It's um, There's some problems, intractable problems around uh, moving around in virtual space with a, a headset on related to your inner ear and um, what happens when um, the ground truth that your inner ear knows is that you're you're sitting still, you're not moving, or maybe you're moving around at a, a certain in a certain way in your room. But if if what your eyes are seeing through the VR headset conflicts with that, you'll get sick. So applications where you're just kind of moving and flying freely around in a, a vast space um, are still pretty difficult to pull off in in virtual reality. And you know when people um, when people speak of <clears throat> the metaverse at places like Facebook or Epic or what have you, uh, they're generally not talking about those kinds of planetary scale things. They're talking about the, the key features seem to be that it's a, a 3D universe that, that is massively multiplayer. And um, <clears throat> what you do with that just depends on your, your business model. So we, we seem to see a lot of people interested in virtual meetings or virtual conversations in a fixed space, which um, seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to want. But it's not quite the same thing as the metaverse in Snow Crash. Yeah, I, I know with NASA and Lockheed Martin and other companies, they're looking into using uh, AR for training purposes. You know, you, you have a piece of hardware and you want to train somebody on how to work with that hardware in space and maybe even provide a guide for what you're doing in space or, or while mm -hmm. you're working on a gizmo. So I suppose that's another potential application. For yeah. training purposes. Yeah, no, I like uh, the the two current big makers of ambulatory AR headsets uh, are Microsoft with the HoloLens and Magic Leap with the, now the ML2, and they're both focusing on those kinds of markets. Yeah, you've written something like seventeen books over the years, but you've also taken side gigs like the one with Magic Leap and also Blue Origin. I was really happy to see you at the July uh, Blue Origin New Shepherd launch. Uh, yeah. And you've done other things like working on a sword fighting video game. What do you do nowadays when you need a break from writing? Is there a new side gig that you're working on? During COVID, um, you know, like a lot of people, I was kind of at loose ends part of the time. So, you know, I started um, acquiring equipment. I, you know, got some machine tools uh, 3D printers, that kind of thing. So I kind of have my own little production capability now so I can tinker with things and build projects um, on my own without having to um, justify what I'm doing uh, on a business basis. So that, you know, enables me to scratch that itch. It's I'm spending money instead of receiving compensation, but, you know, you can't have everything. Are there any particular things that you are interested in with uh, 3D printing? Uh, are you making 
swords or are you making i don't know dolls? i've done i've done some some things related to um equipment for um simulated sword fighting yeah but um it, it tends to be a grab bag of of projects and and you know one of the things that happens is that uh it can be hard to maintain focus and, and get one thing done all the way through because once you have all these possibilities it's easy to you know say hey i think i'll um i think i'll just do this little side project <clears throat> you know or the equipment itself requires maintenance so like right now i'm 3d printing a part that's for that's going to help me make better use of um of a different tool of a, a, a 3d mill that I've got. So uh, you end up kind of uh, cannibalizing some of your time um, just to maintain the stuff that you've already got. I guess the last question would be um, relating to a project that you and uh, more than a dozen other collaborators uh, worked on while you were at Magic Leap. It was a science fiction audiobook called New Found Land, The Long Haul. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas behind that audiobook was to create a story universe that was well suited for augmented reality. Is that where right. the future is that where the future of the novel lies? You you've just turned sixty two, but if you're still creating novels at the age of seventy two, and I hope you are, how will those novels be presented? No, I, I think the novel is will be with us for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's that's not going anywhere. It just has so many advantages over other creative forms. <clears throat> you know, uh, one person can produce a novel single-handedly with essentially zero equipment. You don't have to have software. You don't have to have engineers. Um, uh, you can just do it. Um, and there's, it's got almost infinite amount of creative flexibility. So, um, so the novel is, is here to stay, but that doesn't mean that we can't play around with, with different forms. Um, so yeah, what we were doing with Newfoundland was, um, just, we were building an IP universe that was designed to work with augmented reality from the ground up and then telling stories in that. Uh, in that universe, and um, we we did some cool stuff there, but it got shut down when Magically made the pivot about a year and a half ago to um, commercial industrial uh, applications, which I think was a probably a, a sound business decision. You know, I don't I don't begrudge it, but the uh, the audio book that you refer to it's called Newfoundland the Long Haul and that was a project that we had launched with in, in collaboration with Audible <clears throat> during the uh, during the last year that I was there and, or that I was at Magic Leap and um, and so it just it just kept going there was no reason why Audible couldn't just carry it through to completion which to their credit they did and. This was a idea that originated within Audible uh, from from Don Katz, the the CEO uh, of um, creating work that was so so written to the form is the expression. So when um, the classic thing that you see on Audible is a book that uh, someone just reads, uh, which is fine. I listen to them all the time. It's an incredibly popular, successful form, and there's nothing wrong with it. But 
you know, we used to have back in the day, we used to have things called radio plays where each voice would be read by a different actor and there'd be sound effects and music and, and all that. And so uh, now they're called audio dramas. And so um, Audible had become interested in, um, in fostering uh, some, some work in that area. So although we, we invented the Newfoundland universe as an AR uh, idea, in this particular case, it came to um, fruition as a uh, storytelling medium that you and I probably both listened to when we were kids called, called Radio Plays. Can you provide a glimpse at coming attractions? Uh, is there, I'm, I'm sure you've got something in mind and you probably don't want to share the whole thing, but uh, is it going to be a traditional novel or are you going to introduce some of the, some of the innovations that you just talked about? Uh, and uh, is it going to be set in the past or the future or all of the above? Once things settle down from all of this, which probably won't be till January, I'm hoping to go back to, uh, to to some historical novel stuff that I was working on a few years ago because um, I very much enjoyed writing historical novels when I was working on the Baroque cycle and Cryptonomicon, and I'd like to, to do more of that. Um, so I have a project like that in the works that will completely be traditional books. And then uh, I, I am working on something that's more technological and cutting edge, but um, I can't, I can't announce it yet. It's uh, maybe might break the surface in mid 2022. Well, I'm going to look forward to that. Uh, I love uh, Termination Shock and looking forward to the next chapter, so to speak. Well, thanks. In case you're wondering, the title of Neil's book, Termination Shock, refers to the bad things that scientists think would happen if we ever started geoengineering the climate and then decided to stop. So now that you've finished the podcast, don't stop. Check out the links from my blog item on GeekWire and Cosmic Log, including links that you can use to buy the book or find out about live events with the author. There's an in-person appearance at Town Hall Seattle on November 14th, for example, and a virtual event presented on November 16th by Third Place Books. Here's another word of advice. Don't stop listening to Fiction Science. Instead, please subscribe to the podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.